between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is alchemy mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the privilege of being joined by Professor Toby Kears, Professor of Evolutionary Biology and University Research Chair at Free University Amsterdam. Her lab uses nanoprobes and high-resolution imaging to map the nutrient flows and architecture of plant-fungal networks. She is globally recognized for her scientific work in the evolution of symbiotic trade and for her public outreach activities, including a 2019 TED Talk. Professor Kears won an Amato Award in 2019 for Unfettered Science. She was awarded the E.O. Wilson Award for Natural History in 2021 and received an Impact Award from the Dutch Science Foundation in 2021 for founding the nonprofit SPUN the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. I'm excited to get her perspective on mycelial networks, how and why nutrients are passed between all the players therein. Professor Kears, thank you so much for joining us on Mushroom Hour. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Well, that that is really humbling, the fact that you've actually tuned into the podcast, because I'm a huge fan and really blown away by the, the scope and scale of your work. Uh, researching, you know, these networks that I think set everyone's imagination alight when we first learn about mushrooms and fungi and the networks that connect the forest. And you've really gone deep into examining how these architectures work. So really, it's an honor to have you on the show. And then before we dive into that deep world of mapping these economies, please tell us that journey you took to becoming interested in fungi in these symbiotic networks, you know, that sequence of events that led you to where you are today. Oh, great. Well, yeah, I love origin stories. And apparently my sister and I were very good at finding morels when we were very young. I remember going out and looking for them. My parents would send us out and we'd come home with these baskets full of those crazy shaped looking mushrooms. I don't remember ever eating them. I don't think I had a real taste for them when I was young. But um, my real work on fungal networks started when I was about 19 uh, in the tropical forests of Panama. I had basically rejected academia at that point. It was the late 90s and I thought, oh, I wanna, I wanna do biology by going out and, and, and being in nature rather than studying it. Um, and so that actually led me to, uh, to the tiny island of Barro, Colorado in Panama, where we really had no idea what was going on with fungi underground. So a rejection of academia led you squarely into academically relevant work and research. And I guess, exactly. what was that work there in Panama? I guess, what, what was that first kind of seminal research that you performed? Yeah, well, I remember getting yelled at by other scientists because I would never watch where I was going because I was always looking at the ground. 
we were digging <laughs> and trying to, it was really kind of the first glimpse of trying to understand fungal networks in tropical forests and trying to understand how the fungal network supported these roots. And I was always wondering why nobody had written an, you know, an identification guide for roots because we're always digging up these, these soil samples and you couldn't tell what roots came from what tree. But everybody was really sort of concentrating on the diversity above ground in that, in that team. But the action for me has sort of always been below ground. And that was really my first foray into, into soil systems and understanding these, these networks. Well, and I'm sure we'll tease this out over the course of our conversation today. But what do you think is it that makes the underground aspect of this, this whole underground world of fungi and plant interactions, why do you think that appealed to you so much? I mean, even at the age of 19? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it was sort of a, maybe it was even a, a counterculture move. You know, everything that uh, interested me was was sort of the, the hidden world, things that we couldn't see. And when I went to Panama, it was really my first exposure. I, I As I said, I, I thought I was re rejecting academia, but instead I was squarely in the jaws of academia <laughs> and being led by some of the greatest, you know, scientists, tropical biologists, uh, in, in the field to these ecosystems. And as the scientists were sort of studying what was happening above ground, well, we just didn't, we didn't have a good snapshot of what was happening below ground. You know, is it the same levels of biodiversity? Was it more, was it less? Were the same kinds of interactions happening? And studying these fungal networks, these, these mycorrhizal networks as, as we call them, was really this idea of, of symbiosis, right? And these intimate partnerships between different species and, and the evolutionary dynamics of those that really had me hooked. It was something we couldn't see and it, it was a barter, it was this trade. And I had always been interested in sort of barter economies. And, um, and here was one that was happening between, between plants and fungi that you know, had no cognition. So I was really interested in trying to understand these, these kinds of partnerships. Well, and I've often said that there's something dissident or rebellious always about fungi. So I'm not surprised that someone who was trying a path less trod was somehow led into mushrooms and fungi. And you just brought up some really big themes that come up, obviously, a lot on the show whenever you're talking about fungi. And you've looked at some of these, though, mutualism, symbiosis, really in a very broad sense about how these dynamics shape biodiversity, how ecologies or how populations assemble, how communities assemble based on these dynamics. But while I just throw these around almost interchangeably, can you give us, at least from your research and your perspective, what the concepts maybe of mutualism and symbioses are, if they're the same thing, if they're different? Because I think that's a, those are some really important terms to, to understand. Yeah, they are very important. Actually, I spend a lot of my time trying to, you know, refine definitions to make sure that we're talking about the the same things. Um, so, so my lab really studies the evolution of symbioses more generally. We study it between plants and fungi, but also in other systems. And by symbioses, what I mean is is very intimate partnerships between different species. So that's the key here: is that it's between different species. So, in the mycorrhizal symbiosis, that's between a plant and uh, and a fungi. And it's usually to the benefit of both. And that's where I hope we can have a, an interesting conversation about. When we talk about, um, about mutualisms, again, that's a partnership between two different species, but it doesn't necessarily have to be as intimate. 
So with the mycorrhizal symbiosis, you know, the fungal partner actually penetrates into the plant root cell. That's very intimate. You can't get more as intimate, intimate as you get. Of, yeah. <laughs> as a fungi <laughs> penetrating into your cell. So mutualism is, is, is always between two different species, though. So the strict definition of symbiosis is that it could be net positive or negative, but intimate. Whereas the strict definition of mutualism is that if it is positive for both species, but doesn't have to be intimate. And of course, these are both, uh, we also use the, the term cooperation, and that's usually defined as, again, a beneficial exchange between individuals. But in this case, they can be of the same species. So for example, humans cooperate with humans. That's a, that's a cooperative act because we're the, coming in the same species. So really when we talk about symbiosis, it's an intimate partnership between two different organisms that is generally to the benefit of both. But again, that can really vary depending on, on context. Yeah, that's one thing I appreciate about your work is kind of defining those different terms and then seeing is cooperation at play here? Is there consciously beneficial relationship? And I'm sure we'll get into all that, how these, but I guess then how have you studied how these relationships shape biodiversity? Because that's something I've been interested in more and more recently is how communities assemble, how basically ecologies come together. And of course, many of us are aware of competition dynamics uh, and how that affects the evolution of species. And But then there's all these different potentials for how mutualisms or symbioses or cooperations could affect community assembly. So maybe what are some examples of that or you know, if you'd rather just go over broad tenets of how those relationships affect biodiversity. Yes, these, these relationships are very important in shaping biodiversity. And I think that's because they're, they're really driving innovation. They allow organisms to exploit new habitats and niches. So as soon as you make some kind of new partnership, it, it usually allows you to access some resource that you've never been able to access before. Um, so, so again, plants and, and these mycorrhizal fungi are, are an amazing example because some, what, I think the latest estimate is around 475 million years ago, uh, fungi facilitated the movement of aquatic plants onto land. And everything that we see around us now is because symbiosis really lies at the heart of this biodiversity. So I think that, you know, competition is, is incredibly important in shaping ecosystems these kinds of symbioses are also incredibly important because it allows you to access resources that you before would have no access to. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And so for many of us, understanding some of those groundbreaking symbioses like you described that fungi play a major role in really starts to shift how we see ecologies. And I know for many of us, it's, oh, well, competition isn't the most dominant factor. Maybe there's actually cooperation that's more dominant. I mean, how do these two dynamics fit alongside each other? I think in science now, we're starting to understand more and more, especially as we go down to that microbial level, some of these mutualisms and symbioses that maybe we didn't before uh, when you know competition was kind of the dominant evolutionary driver that many people understood. So how does emerging understanding and appreciation of symbioses and mutualisms between species maybe challenge a competition framework or does it sit alongside it very well? I mean, what is that dynamic now uh, in your mind? 
So I think the concept of mutualism, it fits very well in the framework of natural selection, right? Because when you enter into a trade relationship, it can bring individual benefits. Now, for that trade behavior to evolve, it has to be able to increase the reproductive success of the individual that's performing that behavior. And so you see these trade relationships evolve in nature where they bring benefits. But that doesn't mean that there's no tension. You always have this sort of inherent tension in mutualisms. And that's why we we can also refer to these mutualisms as you know, reciprocal exploitations, because both mm. partners are just trying to get as much as they can out of that trade. You evolve strategies to try to get more resources. And there's nothing, there's nothing moral about it, right? That's why I love studying trade in nature, right? It's not about morals. There's no guilt for organisms that are trying to take more than their fair share. You evolve these strategies to get more resources so you can reproduce. So in that way, this tension even in these cooperative mutualistic relationships, you know, cheating, this, this idea of taking a tiny bit more, it can drive innovation. It can drive the evolution of new strategies. So I'm always curious, you know, why people are hesitant to, you know, discuss conflict in nature as if everything has to be harmonious. Because really, I, I see that this in, in this tension that you have, even in, in mutualisms, can really drive innovation. It can drive all kinds of new strategies for partners to access new kinds of resources or grow in different kinds of habitats. Because they're, all of these organisms are really trying to reproduce. And if trade can benefit them in a way that allows them to do that, then, then that will evolve. Well, and it's interesting because these dynamics it's not black and white. I mean, that trading scenario you're talking about, there is a form of competition at play. And that perspective in reading your work, it I mean, it's so intuitive. And once you see it, it's like, oh, of course, that's what's happening. But it kind of broadens that understanding because initially, I think the instinct, at least for me, is to project my own kind of desire for harmony and cooperation. And I want to see these fungi as very kind and they're helping support the plants and the plants likewise are supporting other plants using mycorrhizal networks because everyone's just trying to lift each other up, but they don't have necessarily human emotions and those concepts of being kind or beneficent to one another. Uh, so I think you really help ground in what dynamics are at play in a much more nuanced way and it still fits well within that evolutionary framework and really broadens my understanding of kind of the forces at play and how it does drive biodiversity like you said through innovation when did you first stumble on to that trade analogy though because now you've done so much work in broadening this out relating it to market economies and i mean you can go so far into that analogy because it fits so well but when did that first start to emerge for you as you're examining these systems that's a good question when did i start thinking about it in in economic terms well First, I, I just want to take a moment again to, to get at definitions, right? So we can use this idea of a market economy as an analogy, right? We can tell a story about it to describe trade, let's say, between plant roots and mycorrhizal fungi. But when people use the word analogy, I, I, I do like to clarify that how we're using it is as an analytical tool. It's a tool. It's actually like a mathematical framework that allows us to analyze trade strategies in a predictive and you know quantitative manner. 
So it's a little bit different than, than just an analogy. We use it to be able to predict what an organism should do in a given scenario. That is a very good distinction. So this is more than just an analogy to help us conceptualize. This is an actual analytical tool to help understand these relationships. Was that shift, I guess, then conscious for you to start saying, hey, we can look at this as kind of trading in a market economy and this has predictive value? Was there like a seminal maybe organism or system you were researching where that first emerged for you? Yeah, so to talk about how this started emerging in our work in plant fungal networks, maybe we should first talk about how the trade takes place because the, the biology of the trade itself is, is fascinating. And so when you look at these systems, let's take a, a typical field of, of many different species of plants in it. Let's take a, a grass field, many different species of grasses. If we were to be able to see underground you would have a plant, a host plant, that was colonized by multiple strains and species of these mycorrhizal fungi. So what we study is the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So they're called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi because they, they penetrate into a root cell and they form a beautiful tree-like structure inside the cell. And that's where the exchange takes place. And the exchange is between the sugars and fats that are provided by the host plant that are feeding into the fungal network. And in exchange, the fungal network is foraging for phosphorus and nitrogen. And they're actually trading these resources. And a lot of the work that we do in my lab is to actually visualize those nutrient flows inside fungal networks and try and quantify them, try and see where the fungus moves the nutrients in order to get at the carbon, the sugars and fats that are provided by the host plant. But as I said, going back to the, to the grassland, because you have a, a single plant species and it's colonized by many different traders, if you will, but a single trader, let's say a single individual of a, of a mycorrhizal fungi can also be simultaneously connected to multiple plants. So basically you have a plant connected to multiple species and individuals of fungi, and you have an individual fungi connected to multi, multiple species of plants. Now, that is exactly the sort of framework that you need to apply market theory. It's what we call a bipartite network, where you've got multiple partners on either side of the network. So that's a really major requirement for markets to emerge because these partners have to be competing against each other to, let's say, undercut the price or whatever you have. If you're, if you're only right. interacting with one partner, there's no market. So we can use what's called biological market theory to understand these kinds of transactions in nature. And the plant mycorrhizal system is amazing to do it for. I mean, if only you could see it, right? And that's what we're actually <laughs> trying to do now. You can understand how different kinds of trade strategies evolve. So basically what we do in my group is we set up very very <laughs> precise and laborious experiments where we set up sort of a, a different type of trade interaction, a different kind of context. We either have high amounts of nutrients that the fungi can access, or we change the number of competitors in the market, or we change things above ground. So some plants are growing in the shade and some plants are growing in the sun. And then we try to use economics to predict what partners should do under those specific interactions. 
I mean, it's just a fascinating research into these enigmatic networks and the fact that you can apply kind of market theory and start to be able to predict it. I mean, what then, how does this inform what we understand about decision-making? I mean, we're talking about how decisions get made, how nutrients get sent where, how is that being mediated? Because we're not talking about something with a brain. We're not, again, it's so hard not to ascribe human decision-making processes to these organisms. Is it strictly like a nutrient gradient? As far as your research has taken you guys, what do we understand about how these decisions are being made and mediated between partners in these markets? Yeah, and I think words like decisions, we, we use that in our, wor in our work. We use words like decisions or no. And of course, they can give the impression that a non-cognitive organism shows intent. And of course, it doesn't, right. right? What we're talking about is strategies that are built into the DNA of the organism. And so that's where we try to study what is the strategy that a fungi will do in a particular situation? So first, let's say we could set up experiments where a fungal network is connected to two different roots of varying quality, right? One supplying lots of carbon because it's growing in the sun or because we, we give the root system extra carbon. Well, a lot of the work that we do takes place on what we call in vitro organ cultures. So they're kind of hard to imagine, but it's kind of like setting up a tiny little underground system in your hand. So it's about the size of a Petri plate and we grow a root system on one side and it has no photosynthetic top. Now, I know that's hard to imagine, but basically it's a root system that's able to take the carbon from the media and turn it into a form that the fungus can use. So what we can do then is grow root systems under high amounts of carbon or low amounts of carbon and then connect them to fungal networks. And then we actually can watch where the fungal networks are allocating their phosphorus. And what we find repeatedly is that the fungi are very good at discriminating among effective or less effective root systems, the ones that provide them more carbon and the ones that don't provide them lots of carbon. And what this allows us with the kind of the first take home message was that the fungi are good at discriminating, right? They know right. what resources, where, where the, the, the root systems that are providing them with the most resources. You can say, okay, again, you know, even I use the word no, it's really hard not to talk about it in that way. But again, it's just a strategy. The way that a root would grow towards nutrients or a shoot would grow towards light or even like a small bacteria would adjust the way it swims to a resource pool. Organisms have a, a need, they need to be able to sense resource gradients, right? And they allocate right. their own energy of where to grow based on those gradients. So really the same thing is happening with plants and fungi. And, and most of that magic takes place in those structures called arbuscules, where there's a constant flux of carbon to uh, phosphorus and nitrogen. Yeah, and I love how you said it's encoded in the DNA, because yes, how does a plant know how to grow toward light? How does, I mean, this is hardwired into the genetic code. This is how this organism exists. I mean, this is what it, it programmed to do is to sense a higher nutrient gradient, take nutrients from that source, provide nutrients back. Is there a distinction between what player between this plant and fungi interaction in these markets? What player is kind of initiating that contact and deciding, because from the way you're describing it, I immediately think, oh, the fungus is lacing out through the ground, connecting with root structures, discriminating based on carbon amounts. 
are the plants playing any role in this with volatiles they emit to track fungi or something like that? Yeah, you just should come and, and join our lab because these are the exact same questions that we're asking oh, every day is trying to understand the system. We know that, that plants themselves are also very good. We can cover a plant root system with fungi of varying quality, some that are what we call cheaters. Uh, there's, I love the cheaters that we, we have growing in the lab. <laughs> They're very good at, at taking up phosphorus but then putting it in a form in their fungal network that's not accessible to plants. Now, what a brilliant strategy, right? If you can get away with it, if you can take up all the phosphorus, then the plant becomes even more dependent on you for those nutrients because it, it can't get at it itself. Wow. A um, monopoly on the phosphorus, yeah. A monopoly. And not only that, but the fungi are also very good at controlling the way that the plants use their own uptake system. They can actually down-regulate the plant's own ability to take up phosphorus. So they get more addicted to the, to the phosphorus coming from the fungal network. So of course, so fungi have all of these clever strategies. Hopefully we can talk about even more, but yes, both sides employ very cunning strategies. The plants are very good at discriminating against between effective and less effective mycorrhizal strains. And again, we set up the reciprocal experiments where we have a root system attached to multiple fungal networks. And again, we see that the, the plants will allocate more of the carbon to the fungi that's providing more phosphorus. So you've got discrimination on both sides, which is really what you need for market dynamics to emerge. Right? If there was no discrimination, there's no market. Again, how can you have an exchange market if you just give the same amount to, to all your partners? Right? That's not how markets work. So what we find is that both sides employ these very cunning strategies to maximize their gains. And not only that, but these strategies change depending on external conditions. So you can, again, change the conditions, change the number of, of um competitors in the system. We did one experiment that I really enjoyed where the plant evolved a very cunning system. We had either plants of the same genotype, so exactly the same genotype connected to one fungal network, or we had a plant on one side connected with a fungal network to a different plant species. And interestingly enough, what happened is that the allocation into that fungal network depended on the social conditions of the host, meaning that if it was with the same genotype, it was with one of its, its own genotypes with itself, then they both contributed to the fungal network. But as soon as it was connected to a different plant species, there was less allocated to that fungal network because that fungal network could benefit a competitor. So again, it's all about trying to understand who is, who is tapped into the fungal network at any given time, how many resources are available, and how many competitors there are in the system. And just that one example leads you to think, how can the tree tell whether or not it's attached through a fungal network to a different genotype? So you could just see all the questions to figure out how are these organisms even identifying what's going on in this market as we piece together kind of the outputs of what happens as conditions as conditions change. And I guess, are there different strategies then? I mean, you've laid out some really mind-blowing ones. I'm still kind of reeling, understanding that fungi are able to change how plants can uptake phosphorus. But do different mycorrhizal species, I know you guys specifically have looked at arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Have you seen different strategies employed by different species 
or is it more of something facultative where it seems like they all have the potential to employ certain strategies depending on the situation and the partners involved? I wish I wish we knew. I wish if we even spent, you know, 1% trying to study underground fungal markets as we do studying human economic markets, we would be so much further along in this research. Right. <laughs> but it's these experiments are really hard to set up. And so it's very difficult to, you know, make broad conclusions about what's happening and especially at the forest level, right? So I'm the first to admit that we're doing these very very small scale manipulations and actually tracking nutrients, you know, at a very small spatial scale, you know, but what happens as soon as you introduce the complexity of a real, you know, even a grassland or a, a soil ecosystem where you have different, you know, we have bacteria and protists and this whole soil life that's interacting with the network as well. Some are using the network to travel. There's incredible amounts of, of chemicals that are also moving, you know, either passively or actively across the network. It scales in complexity really fast as soon as you move out of, of, of our petri plate system. And so I think what we're doing now is trying to develop the tools that we can use to scale up, because I think that's kind of the frontier. So, for example, a lot of what we're doing right now is, is as you said, trying to understand what drives the fungi to be able to process information. How, how are they able to take what is around them in the ecosystem, whether it's, you know, what competitors are there or what root systems they're connected to and use that information to make quote unquote trade decisions. Right. And to be able to study those trade decisions, we need to visualize them. We need to understand how they're doing it. So thanks to some amazing work with biophysicists here in Amsterdam and in my lab, we're developing these new technologies now where we can actually visually quantify the nutrient flows in the network and watch how they change directions, how they go faster, how they go slower. And it's fascinating. So we're getting these libraries of, of videos basically that show us fungal strategies in a language that we cannot yet decode, if you see what I'm saying. Right, right. Terabytes, terabytes of information about how the nutrients are moving through the network and what we do is expose them to very small manipulations, right? We add a bit of nutrients here and see, okay, does that change the flows? You know, we'll, we'll take them and, and cut the network to see how they respond. Um, there's all kinds of small manipulations that we can do and then try to understand how the fungi respond to these manipulations. And by doing that, the ultimate goal is to understand this language of how they're processing the information outside them. So again, coming back to your question, how do they know that they're connected to different root systems? You know, <laughs> let's, let's get busy, right? Because that's, <laughs> that's exactly what we're trying to, to figure out. And I think we can do that by understanding the flows. For anyone else curious about this, that is the clarion call. It is time to put our brains and our resources toward this effort. And while I'm sure that kind of technology gives you some kind of predictive value, like any system where you don't understand all the component parts, if you can manipulate, do certain controlled manipulations of the system, you can start to understand what will happen. You don't necessarily know why it happens, but you do get some predictive value. And I'm assuming then, is this the quantum dot technology that you guys are enlisting with these experiments? 
Yeah, so quantum dots are a tool that we use um, in, in my group. Um, so quantum dots are very cool. They're very small nanoparticles that you can tag to nutrients that fluoresce in very pure, bright colors when exposed to a UV source. And what's amazing about these quantum dots is you can tag them to things like apatite, which is a, a rock form of phosphate. And then that allows you to visually track where the phosphorus is moving across the network. And so you can set up very cool experiments where you label resources in different colors and then try to figure out where the fungi is going to move them. So for example, we did one experiment that came out in 2019, where we exposed a fungal network to varying levels of what we call inequality, right? We wanted to see, so inequality is obviously a very big issue in, in human markets, and we wanted to know, okay, well, how do, how do fungi, how do they, how does their behavior change when they're exposed to extreme inequality across their network? And so, so to do that, we tagged the, the resources in different colors. So if you had no resource inequality, it was spread evenly across these artificial landscapes, then the two colors were spread 50-50. Um, but then in, in where you had inequality, let's say in the 70-30 ratio or a 90-10 ratio, and in those cases, those resources would be tagged in different colors. And so part of the fungal network was exposed to a very resource-rich resource area. And the other half of the network was exposed to a very resource poor area of the network. And then we could see how the fungi dealt with those conditions. I mean, that's fascinating. Do you guys have someone on, do you guys have economists, market economists on staff that are helping you with kind of interpreting these results in that market framework? Or I guess, how do you guys then translate this visual data and the takeaways that you're getting to really understanding the market framework, what does that process look look like for you guys? And, and you know, my apologies if I'm not saying that correctly. No, it's per so we we actually work a lot with economists. So that's that's a great question. I think that's one of the best parts about academia is you know just how interdisciplinary it is. So you know, one day you're at a physics institute, and the next day you're with economists. You know, and and just bringing these worlds together through fungi is is incredible. Yeah. So for example, in this experiment with inequality, we found some results that that really surprised us. And so that's when we started working with um, an economist, Ronald Noe, who is sort of the, the grandfather of biological market theory. And most of his work mm. in the past has been on grooming markets between primates, right? It's a very different system. But in a case where people would study how primates groom each other and a certain amount of grooming would be traded for a certain amount of food, but then as food availability increases, then the value of that grooming service goes down, you know, so it's the same right, sort of market right. dynamics. And we brought him on in on this uh, paper as well. And what, what, what we found was that the fungi, what they do is they, they take the resources from the very resource-rich area, and we had assumed they would just trade it right there with the plant, and that side would get bigger. But actually what they did... Yeah, I, I don't think I have to tell you, right? Fungi are absolutely amazing. What they, what they would do is they take up the, the phosphorus in the network, but then rather than trade it directly with the plant root, they moved it across the entire network to where plant demand for phosphorus was higher. So they took Get it over to the price. resource poor 
area to get a better price. Exactly. They got a better price because they first translocated the phosphorus across the network to the other side. And then this was a super successful strategy in the sense that more carbon was given to that resource poor side and overall the network grew larger by first moving it across. That's fascinating. They can understand that gradient so well to be able to go and get a better resource price. Have there been any other experiments? I'm sure there's loads, but other experiments that have really highlighted aspects of a biological market and these players acting in self-interest that really stands out to you in trying to piece together how these systems work? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the the examples that we do see consistently is that the fungi can artificially inflate the price of of resources by taking them up into their network and storing it. So again, we used the quantum dots in a, a cool experiment where we added resources. So at different time points, and each one of those time points was a different color. So one of the hardest things in in these kinds of experiments is the time resolution, is that you set up an experiment and then you kind of harvest it and you see what happened at the end, but you don't necessarily get to see all of the interactions that are happening during that transaction. So you can imagine that that's that's where the that's where the good stuff is 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 the is the in between. So by by labeling it different colors, we could follow it across time. And again, this is quite interesting. Is what the fungi did was that we again exposed it to to three different very different economic conditions. So a control conditions where we kept it the same. But then we either exposed it to a boom of nutrients where we added the nutrients at a high level or a crash. We wanted to see what happens with an economic crash. So to simulate an economic crash, we just severed the network. Very, you know, breaks your heart. <laughs> Somebody loves fungi, right? right? And you sever the network and then you see how the fungus trades under those conditions. We had thought that the value of the phosphorus would be very high at the beginning because there was none available because we had just caused this crash. But again, what happened was that the fungi, rather than it was able to to grow in an area that was closer to the root. And so each one of these compartments was labeled with a a different color phosphorus. And it was trading the, the phosphorus that was closer to the root initially but then the network grew back really fast. Like we thought we even had considered, wow, like, are we sure we severed it? Like incredible resilience. Wow. But then holding on again to the phosphorus until the very end and then getting a better price for it. So that was quite interesting in the, in the, in the, what we called the boom treatment where we really added phosphorus again, instead of just automatically trading it, it just holds it back, holds it back, holds it back and then is able to get a better price. Now for that experiment in particular, do you think that gives, again, with being a controlled experiment, you don't get the full complexity of an entire ecology, but do you think that mimics how these networks may react to disturbance? This is a great question. So how they how they respond to disturbance. In systems in nature, the thing that worries me the most, really that keeps me up at night, is thinking about tillage. <laughs> tillage is right? really scary. Tillage is really scary. You're destroying all those networks. Yeah. All of those networks, those networks are trying so hard. And if you've seen these fungal networks, we're, we're, we're starting to, to publish sort of the first visualizations of, of how the nutrients move through the, through the networks. As soon as you see them, it, it changes the whole way you look at underground and, and fungi in general, right? It's it's just fascinating yeah. because 
the fungi, they don't, they're aseptate, right? Which means that they don't have septa. So they're like an open pipe system. It's really open. So it's just these beautiful flows going in two directions, right? You've got to imagine this. They've got to move the carbon one way and the phosphorus the other, right? So there's this bi-directional movement. We still, this is what we're doing. We're trying to understand how they do that, right? How they can move resources in different directions simultaneously. Right. But when you have tillage or you see this severed, it's just, it's a leaky system, right? And it's hard for them because they don't have those septa to sort of really fast close up those individual cells. They are very leaky and the whole cellular contents just kind of spills out, right? Now we can't feel too sorry for them, right? These these guys have been around for close to 500 million years. They're, they're good resilient, at what they yeah. do. They're very resilient. But yes, they are going to trade differently if they're always exposed to... Um, to tillage or any kind of mechanical disturbance. And what you see in nature, if you look in these agricultural fields, is a kind of a different sort of weedy type of, of organism that, yeah, it, it's a very different network than you would find in a no-till system. So really it's a strong selection pressure, right? Tillage is a very strong selection pressure. So they'll probably tend to sporulate a bit more and form very quick, you know, fast forming networks rather than longer, thicker, more intact networks. That makes so much sense. And just when you describe the experiment, that's what I thought of was someone tilling and cutting those networks. When you said, oh, it grew back very quickly to where we couldn't even tell if we severed it. I'm thinking, oh, that gives me some hope. But yeah, over time, obviously, that pressure would probably necessitate an entirely different kind of different forms and adaptations being made. So, I mean, hugely exactly. interesting. And, and you brought up that that big, big question that you can't really expect anyone to answer, but do you have theories about how these nutrients are being moved through the systems? I've heard turker pressure. I've heard, I mean, a number of different theories, but in your mind, what do you think some of the most compelling theories are about how, especially you get this bi-directional movement of nutrients? Yeah, well, evidence suggests that at this point that you definitely have molecular motors involved. So some kind of very small, tiny, tiny little motors that are running on tracks up along. That's incredible. Allow the, the nutrients to move in different directions. That said, pressure is also incredibly important. So as we take these videos, right? So again, we have about you know terabytes of data of these videos and just trying to decode that language is, is, keeping us, is keeping us busy. But we see really complex movements of nutrients where the nutrient streams will completely change directions, for example. And that looks like it's more pressure driven. So there's definitely, I'd say contributions coming from, from two main sources, and that's molecular motors moving on tracks on either side, but then also sort of a pressure-driven flow. Molecular motors, that is an entirely new concept to me, and that is incredibly fascinating and mind-blowing to think of almost these little train tracks. I know they're not that, but I'm thinking of little train tracks where these nutrients are moving on either side. No, that's a very good analogy, actually. One of my one of my students was trying to describe it the other day to somebody else and, and said they're like little train tracks that yeah, sort of build the tracks. <laughs> they can build the tracks as they're growing and, and forming these little train tracks that move resources. Exactly. 
Well, and as you're talking about these terabytes of data, and I am overjoyed to hear that there's going to be these visuals being released, because I'm sure they're at times uh, breathtaking just to see that fluorescence and seeing these intricate networks illuminated, if you will. What is that process of capturing pictures? You know, is that something, are these strictly in Petri or once you're, I'm guessing, getting the tagged nutrients into your controlled system, how are you then photographing or maybe what is the structure of that kind of experiment look like? Yeah, so this is where the biophysicists come in. They're brilliant. And that's what a postdoc in my lab has been working on uh, for a few years now, actually. Loreto Galvez has been building what we call an imaging robot. It's an amazing tool. And so it allows us to actually take pictures of the fungal network as it grows, taking pictures roughly every four hours across these landscapes that we expose it to. And we can do about 40 networks at the same time, and we can then watch them over time. And so basically what you need to do to understand this language is first understand the physical structure of the network. So that's like topology of the network. If you think of that as like the highway system, right? The, the, where, the, where the fungi are growing to forage for nutrients. And then we have a high resolution camera that zooms in wherever we tell it. So we basically, it's like a little computer game, right? You tell it where to zoom in and then it can take high image videos at those junctions. And so that gives us like a coordinated system where we can know where we're taking images, uh, these videos across the network and then correlate it to that topology. Because of course, where you are in the network is going to influence what those flows look like. So again, you need to have both the, the structure of the network and then uh, you know high resolution um, video imaging to to capture the flows. And then we have um, another postdoc who's who's able to label different parts of the cellular contents of the of the network. So even with just things like lipid dyes and things like that, doesn't necessarily not all of our stuff works with these quantum dots. They can be very very expensive to use and, um, yeah. and, and, you know, there's lots of other tools. So that's just one of the tools that we use. But again, taking very intense videos over a certain time scale and then following individual particles inside the network. So those, we call it particles, but it could be any kind of cellular contents. It could be, it could be nuclei, it could be vacuoles and following their trajectories and then extracting that data. And then you can look at the speed and the direction and the trajectory of each of those particles inside a movie. And that's, then we extract those data to try to sort of make predictions. Okay, if it's going like this now, what do we expect it to look like at this time point? So that's sort of how it works in our group. Yeah, I mean, a fascinating set of skills that you need to even structure this kind of work. So it sounds like then the videos are at static points and so in order, is that correct? Or do they follow nutrients? Oh, I see what you mean. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah no, that would be, that would be great. That would be great. If we could follow individual, but these particles, they're moving fast. Because <laughs> I was going to say, there's a big skill that required to even figure out, hey, this is going to be a critical juncture in the system, like you're saying, understanding the structure, and then to try to follow the nutrients. Okay, we've got it in frame camera one over here. When does it arrive at camera two? Really interesting. Yeah, no, they move pretty fast. So actually, a, a student in our group did some calculations. And if you were in the fungal network, if you were at that, that size, and you were actually in it, and you're moving with the nutrient stream, 
it would feel like you're moving about 50 kilometers an hour. So it's it, it's fast if you're in it, yeah. right? For us looking down, it's quite slow because it's quite small, right? But if you're that size and you're in it, it feels as if you're moving about 50 kilometers an hour. That's incredible. It's kind of a broad question. How has studying these underground markets and economies changed your perceptions of our maybe our human market dynamics? Because my initial impression is, hey, maybe we're not that unique. I mean, we have inflation, resource hoarding, kind of fencing from one place to another based on value. Maybe we're following some kind of law of biological markets. I mean, how does this change your understanding of, of human markets? I think we can ask, we can ask sort of what questions are useful to humans. It's really hard for me to say the opposite, right? Like, what have I learned about economies? I know that there's, you know, there's clear lessons here about the efficient movement and trade of resources. Our own economic system, it's so radically different to the trade practice undergrounds, right? I mean, if we talked about barter right. systems, it would make a bit more sense. But there are some questions, I think, that we can ask that are useful to humans. And for example, we can ask, you know, what drives economies to fall apart? What, what causes them to break so that they're no mm. longer functioning? We can ask, like, how do small local markets evolve, right? What are the conditions that allow these types of markets to evolve? Or, or like, what is the optimal size of the trading partners for, for market exchange, right? Is there some optimal number that makes trading in general more efficient? I think because we can bring the economic system into the lab, that's what, where the exciting part is, right? We can watch trade strategies evolve. We can study tipping points for when and how trade relationships break down. Um, so we can ask questions, but how relevant they are to today's economy, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I ask myself that question a lot. But I mean, it does sound like you're able to extrapolate some things and relate it back to our system. But It'll be interesting to see as your research develops if some insights like that do emerge. I'm not saying we'll have like predictive analytics on the stock market, but <laughs> but just to understand, yeah, those basics of how economies form and what breaks them. Really interesting. Yeah, I guess what is just to to jump in on that question about, you know, it is interesting in terms of if we are doing computer trading, right? That is just about information processing. And so we know that these fungi are good at information processing. And as long as there's no moral decisions or any kind of anticipation, or if it's just pure economic decisions, you know, that that can lead us to some interesting questions in terms of algorithms, right? What algorithms do fungi use compared to algorithms used by trade you know happening in computers so that that's some of the questions that we that we want to ask but again because each experiment is so precise and achingly you know hard to set up and extract the data from you know what we really need to do is just really large scale experiments and still i think that's that's where we're limited is it it, it can take it can take a year to do an experiment right it's a long it's, mm. it's a long time so we're good at getting data, but actually, you know, setting up these manipulations, it takes a long time to extract the data, analyze it. So we need to get to scale faster before we can answer those, those bigger questions. So I threw out this example. I thought, oh, well, we couldn't predict the stock market. But actually, yes, as things become more algorithm traded, maybe fungi are going to help us understand <laughs> how the algorithm trading on, on stock market. That's I love that perspective. And you just hit on the next big thing I was going to ask is what is the future of this research or maybe your kind of dream future for how you hope this progresses 
And that makes a lot of sense too. You bring things to scale. And I would imagine the holy grail would be to somehow implement some kind of controlled research in a forest setting. Exactly. So we really want to try to study fungal behavior and try to understand what causes the fungal behavior to change so we can quantify the flows and understand this by scaling up into real ecosystems. So yeah, how do we quantify flows in forests? I think that's one of the, the big frontiers. Well, and then tell us about SPUN, the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. Because as more people like myself, more people who are interested, or as this awareness of underground mycorrhizal networks of the soil food web as all of this rises in the kind of collective cultural consciousness. The question a lot of people get is why aren't we implementing this understanding and how we manage lands, how we do agriculture? You know, when will this pervade so we can kind of keep these networks intact and really kind of give them their give them their due, if you will. I mean, so what is the Society for Protection of Underground Networks? How did it start and, and what are your goals with that organization? So, so SPUN is a, a nonprofit that we started to, to map and preserve the Earth's underground fungal networks. I think if we look at the statistics, we're destroying the planet's fungal networks at an alarming rate. So based on current trends, we more than 90% of the Earth's soils are supposed to be degraded by 2050, right? So this is just stunning statistics in terms of how much soil we're losing and at the same time, you know, you've got modern industries from agriculture to forestry. They're really failing to, to take account of life in the soil. And so SPUN's aim is to save trillions of kilometers of underground fungal networks that are threatened by human impact and climate extremes. Right. So we can support networks so they can continue to sequester carbon and move nutrients and, and protect biodiversity above ground. Yes. And like I told you right before the show, I am so happy to hear that such a society exists now uh, because, you know, these are such important but hidden worlds that it's hard to know how to interact or necessarily protect them. And I know stage one is to even understand that they're there and how they work because you can't protect something that you don't know about and don't understand. And I guess what are the mechanisms by which we can protect these networks or some strategies that you're interested in employing with SPUN? Yeah, so we were just given this really large multi-million donation to sort of lead the first ever global exploration of fungal networks. And I think it, it marks a major turning point, you know, in conservation and in climate agendas, because the world, they, they're finally realizing that we need to focus on underground ecosystems. So, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, with mycorrhizal fungi, they can supply as much as 80% of plants' nutrition. We've got farming practices that use plowing and chemical fertilizers and pesticides that, you know, we see, we have the data to show how severely reduced the abundance and diversity and even the physical integrity of these fungal networks are. And so we just need to shift our conservation priorities to underground ecosystems, right? If we want to tackle the climate crisis, we've got to address this, this blind spot, this global blind spot. And that's these networks underground that help us regulate the climate and basically sustain everything that we depend on. So really, we're going to be working with local communities across the globe to, to take soil samples and build an open source global map 
that shows these biodiversity hotspots, you know, where fungal networks are associated with high um, carbon sequestration, where the endemic fungal networks, and then work with managed uh, industries like forestry and agriculture to see how we can you know, really continue to have healthy fungal networks that help with moving nutrients and protecting biodiversity. I mean, really exciting work and sounds like some of the most important work I could imagine giving these emerging insights about soil. And like I said, for myself, it's been a more recent journey, but there have been people preaching about the virtues of healthy soil and how healing the planet starts with healing the soil. So I take a lot of heart to know that your guys' initiative uh, is underway to at least begin to understand the current lay of the land and then work with groups to try to improve things. I guess, is there any other work in the lab? You know, we've hit on some really some big experiments that gave a great overview. Are there any other projects you're excited coming in the near term there in the lab? Yeah, well, we also have something, a very interesting initiative in the lab um, that's funded by the Dutch Science Foundation, a, a huge 10-year grant to sequence the microbiome of 100 plant species, the root microbiome of 100 plant species. And so we're focused on looking at how domestication has changed, that how plants interact with fungi and their microbial mm. communities. And so in this case, we're looking at wild and domesticated pairs of legumes, for example, wild soybeans and modern soybeans, and trying to understand how the physical structure, like the root architecture, has changed and how that changes the relationship that they have with fungi and other types of, of uh, organisms like nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So you can imagine that these, these plants, they've been bred under very high nutrient conditions. And that changes not only the physical architecture of their root, but how they interact with fungal symbionts, how much carbon they give, right? If they've been growing in these environments where nutrients are so readily available, how do they evolve the mechanisms or have we lost the mechanisms to discriminate between effective and non-effective partnerships with mycorrhizal fungi? So we're, we're basically trying to understand that trajectory and asking, okay, well, has the breeding process you know, evolved out their ability to interact with these symbionts in a way that their ancestors had before? And that's always the element that's so staggering to me when you talk about ecology and you add in this evolutionary component. It's complex enough to understand the architecture, the trading strategies and behavior, but then to add the dimension of time and how things have changed. It gets overwhelming for me very quickly, but yes, you'll have limitless, limitless questions to ask when you're looking at those subjects. Well, that's very exciting. And I'm sure for everyone who's listening, they're as intrigued as I am. And there's so much more to read about your work and about your experiments. Where is the best place for people to connect with your work, uh, maybe connect with the lab and find out more about the work you guys are doing? I guess the best way to find us is is through my name. So we have a website, tobykears.com, and that's where we put up all of our lab um, experiments and, and media and things like that. And then, of course, for SPUN, we have a website, spun.earth. So it's spun.earth, and that will tell you more about how to accelerate the underground climate movement. Yes, a ton of work to dive into papers, your TED Talk. I love the Toby Kears website because it's just straightforward. There's a TED Talk. There's all the research. You just go to that website. You'll get everything you need to know to, to learn more. And obviously, we'll have that in the show notes as well. Well, then I guess I'll wrap things up with three questions I like to ask 
all of my guests, and you may have a mind-blowing answer uh, for this first one, but what is a fungus or a mushroom that you love and why? This is, could be something you've researched, something you love to eat, you know, whatever the case is, but a mushroom that holds a special place in your heart or a fungus and why? I was going to say, does it have to be a mushroom? I mean, I love mushrooms. They're like the handbags, right? They're like the handbags of, <laughs> of the natural world. But I don't think I have a favorite handbag, right? I just, I have, I have a backpack and uh, I like the underground stuff. So I guess my favorite fungi, at least the ones that we work with, is this one called um, Rhizophagus aggregatum. It's definitely the coolest one in our collection because... Um, it's really the it's really the most stable cheater, right? In any given situation, it just tries its best to, to hoard as much phosphorus as possible. And it grows in the most beautiful sort of, it almost looks like a fractal when you see it growing across the landscape. It's a, such a beautiful pattern that it makes very unlike the other strains that are very much more straight and angular. This one has a bit more curves to it. Yeah, it's the one that we get most excited about because you never know what it's going to do. It's just, it's going to cheat the plant and that's for sure. So we love watching the tension in the trade between the aggregatum and, and roots. Yes, and I love how you've laid out that perspective of this kind of cheating as this tension in any trading market system. And of course, it's an amoral system. So the people that are more successful at cheating, it's really just a survival and, and more effective reproduction strategy. Exactly. I, I love that. Uh, and then a very broad question, but what has this relationship you've developed? And I guess we could say with these underground networks, but the relation you've developed with fungi, you know, what has that given to you? And that can be anything from spiritual to economic, uh, personal perspectives. But what do you think this in-depth relationship you've developed uh, has given to you? Oh, I think when you talk about relationships with fungi, yeah, I think an appreciation for the unseen majority, right? That's what's mm. happening here is that there is this unseen majority and that's underground. When you start to, 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 to watch these videos, you really get a different perspective on soil systems and how alive they are. I mean, they're nutrient rivers. There's literally nutrient rivers under our feet. And it's something like 50%, up to 50% of the living biomass of soils is these networks, right? So it's just intense. And when you think about this unseen majority, it makes you feel very small and sort of appreciate all of these things that you see above ground that, you know, may have glamour and glitz, right? But, but the real powerhouses, the workhorses are all underground. So I think that's my first answer. And the second answer is just a total awe of evolution, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just you yeah. see these strategies evolve and you think, wow, that really makes sense in this context, right? I think the way that natural selection works to drive innovation, you know, whether that is through conflict or, or, you know, conflict that's even within symbioses, it's, it's incredible. You almost have these sort of arms races of innovation, right, where partners are evolving different ways of interacting with each other. And that's what, that's what, you know, leads to things like the peacock tail that we see above ground. But all that stuff is happening. Right. It's just we can't see it. So, yeah, I think those two things, just how vast it is and, and just how cool it is that it's, it's happened through evolution. Yeah, some of the most evocative, interesting, and powerful systems are the ones going on underground that we can't see. I definitely take that away from your work and really any kind of understanding of fungi. And it does seem like fungi are these exemplars of evolutionary innovation, maybe because they're just kind of these almost blank templates, you know, these hyphal masses that can become anything. 
and the endless amounts of innovation that comes out of that is, is staggering. So fantastic answer. And then the final question, another kind of huge one, but and we've talked about it some, but what are your highest aspirations uh, for how our kind of human family, how collective society can improve as we start to better understand fungi and really deepen our relationship with these organisms? I think that conservation priorities, they shift to the unseen, again, to this unseen majority, right, to the flows and the structures under our feet. We protect coral reefs because we can see them and we know how important they are. They're ecosystem engineers and they lead to this massive biodiversity, right? Fungal networks are the coral reefs of the soil and they're the same. It's just that they're hidden. They also support huge amounts of, of species and interactions. And so I think, yeah, my, my highest aspiration right now is really to, to allow conservation to, to shift to the things that people can't see, to flows and structures under our feet. And your team may be doing some of that most powerful work to let us see these networks. Like you said, it totally shifts your perspective when you give us some kind of visual that that may be one of the biggest tilts to helping us kind of appreciate the silent majority underground more than ever. Well, Professor Kears, thank you so much for coming on the show, really sharing all this detail about your research, all these fascinating insights. I mean, some of this material, these perspectives are things that I have not heard before, even in speaking with other researchers on mycorrhizal economies and underground webs. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.